0: Greetings, I'm Tyler and this is The Socialized Recluse. My guest this time is Maud Newton, writer, critic, and author of the remarkable Ancestor Trouble, A Reckoning and a Reconciliation, which has been hailed in the New York Times Book Review as a literary feat and a brilliant mix of personal memoir and cultural observation in the Boston Globe. Not to be outdone, it's also received claim from Oprah Daily, NPR, Vanity Fair, Vulture, the Los Angeles Times, Wired, and has been named one of Esquire's best books of 2022. So, why, you may be asking, on earth is she talking to me? Um, it's pretty simple. Um, I asked and she agreed, because Maud's awesome. But why did I ask? Not only am I a years long fan of Maud's work and of Ancestor Trouble, obviously, but I've spent the last several months, um, several years, decades really, in my head in therapy and various degrees of inebriation, uh, trying to forget or at least exercise and simultaneously wrangle with the complexities of relate my relationship with my mother. Uh, one that had been, for me at least, irrevocably severed for at least a quarter of a century, um, but was to her, until her very last breath this last April, a wonderful storybook uh, Folgers coffee commercial with double double underlines and snow-swept vistas at Christmas. Um, but, I, but I've spent the last several months exercising those traumas by writing um, my recent release, Last Christmas in July. And I wanted to talk to someone whose courage in reckoning with their own familial history was a direct inspiration on my own efforts. Um, the subtitle of Last Christmas, A Coward's Exorcism, um, is a, a direct reference via contrast uh, to Maude's bravery with Ancestor trauma. Um, but I also want to talk to someone who places a reverence and a duty, no matter how ugly the revelations, on remembering and reckoning with the totality of one's past. And, yeah, have I mentioned that ancestor trouble is absolutely brilliant? So, if you'd like to shout, scream, swear, say hi, or otherwise, my email is tww at parentheticalrecluse.com. And now, my conversation with Maud.
1: was really to get at, at truth you know in yeah. all of its complexity and to yeah just sort of really puzzle out what what do these people mean for me you know and what do ancestors potentially mean for all of us mm-hmm. um you know, and and as you know, I approached that from a lot of different directions.
0: Yes, I I I I was just like I, I just in awe of how you were able to evolve your thinking throughout the book. You're well, ju-
1: I really appreciate that. I you know I feel like it is a lot to come at the reader with, but I also felt really certain that I wanted the book to to be a lot in that way you know that that I was writing for a reader who had you know all of these same questions or at least some of them um and was really just willing to to stay aboard for the whole thing so yeah
0: I mean I have I I sort of always when I when I'm reading I always sort of have a problem with a hard not a problem a hard time with family sagas and fantasies because I can't keep the characters straight. And so your book, I kept having to go back and back and back, but it was totally worth it to, to do it. And I will just apologize in advance because I am sure I will get names and relationships wrong in, in, oh, in, in any question I ask.
1: There was some discussion of including little family trees, mm-hmm. you know, at the beginning of each chapter or, you know, some sort of more orienting um, information. And ultimately, we decided against it, my editor and I. But it is a lot to, to demand of the reader. There are a lot of different um, family members and, and relationships in there. Well, for some, sure.
0: sometime I will have to send you a picture of the marg- of my notes in the margins because I just ended up describing them as the one with the hay hook, uh, the, the witch. <laughs> And I, I was a, that's how I was able to do it. I was just like, okay, I get this now. I can do this. I can do this. <laughs> um, so I, I actually, you know, to follow up on that, something you said earlier was, you know, why couldn't fiction do this story justice?
1: Yeah, that is a really interesting question. And maybe it could have if I were a different person, okay. uh, but I think that I really was trying when I was writing, endlessly writing a novel um, based on, you know, my own family experiences, but fictionalizing them. I was both, I was trying to write a story that wasn't about myself. Um, and was about larger questions, Mm -hmm. but I really wanted to uh, recreate the exact emotional dynamics for the reader of my childhood and my later experiences. Um, And I realized that there was a didactic impulse there um, that really you know as I as I started writing this book I wasn't sure if I would eventually go back to the novel or not Mm -hmm. but um you know the deeper I got into this book the more I realized that for me to tell the story of my childhood in the way that I wanted to tell it I needed to write this book Mm -hmm. um you know because I really wanted to Write both about, you know, my parents and the sort of like larger emotional and other patterns across my family, um, you know, going back in time, and I wanted to place those in a broader context, okay. And so, I feel really cleansed of the need to do that now, <laughs> I feel. I mean, I, I have some essays, you know, coming out that are that are sort of um, jumping off from various aspects of the book. And, you know, I'm sure I'll write about my family here and there still. But for the most part, I feel really cleansed of oh. the need to do that. Well, the, the, really the, the process
0: of writing, it did its job then.
1: Yeah, I, exactly. I feel really excited to write fiction that's you know, I'm sure there will be familiar themes, but it doesn't need to encapsulate mm-hmm. anything in particular about my own experience, which is really pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: And this is the first time you've felt that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in the past... um Pretty much all of the fiction that I wrote, you know, from the juvenilia to the novel that I worked on for many years and never finished, it was all connected in some way to my family of origin. Um, and now, or it was, you know, looking back, like it, it was... A, mm, just sort of, it's, you know, it was juvenilia. I can think of a, of a couple of stories that were not directly related to, to my background, but in any case, it feels great, you know, to just sort of think like, oh, well, what, what am I going to write now? You know, the yeah. possibilities are wide open, which is amazing. You know, I'm sure I'll still write about, you know, evangelical Christians and, you know, um, it's all my usual <laughs> subjects but you know it doesn't need to have anything to do with me which is just yeah very freeing
0: that that was another question i had about the the book i know when i write non-fiction i have a difficult time and it's probably at least for me that i my my background is in well music composition but that doesn't have any bearing on this um, but it was in documentary film. and I always had a an aversion to making myself part of the story um, really until this last thing I just released. And um, I was wondering how you sort of overcame that. I mean, was it a general process or did you just sort of I don't know, say, fuck it and dive in?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I'm really looking forward to reading your book. I Oh, thank it you here downstairs on on my dining room table and it hasn't fallen apart yet so
2: no no excellent
1: and and i've i've got it set up to read at lunchtime on on breaks from my job um but uh yeah i I will
0: sit here with my teeth chattering then
1: (laughs) i think that um you know when i was young I wrote a lot of pretty frank personal accounts. I mean, even, you know, when I was in second grade, I wrote something about, you know, my my neighbor's dogs and, you know, um, how I usually loved dogs, but I was afraid of these dogs. And so, you know, I think I've always been um, okay, okay with... Writing about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also felt pretty strongly that I didn't want to just write, quote unquote, just write. Um, <laughs> you know a a memoir that was about my family. You know, my my mom, my dad, my sister, me. Um, you know, my stepfather, stepsister, my young wife, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. It just the one didn't with the hay hook. Seem... <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I didn't even know about him really right. when I when I first was conceiving of writing about my family, and mm-hmm. I think I just really didn't want to. Um, you know, be sort of stuck in that form and in Mm. that world. Um, I realized that, you know, being stuck in the form is kind of, it's a false. The the um, memoir
2: form. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah.
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah I, I realized that that's sort of a false way of looking at it because a memoir can be anything and there are a million ways to do it. But it just felt really sort of deadening to me to contemplate writing about my specific family mm-hmm. in that kind of detail and not having pathways out You know, and so the more I started learning about my ancestors and seeing all of these patterns, you know, these recurring themes, the more interested I became in that, you know, this sort of large canvas way of looking at the family, you know, somehow seeing these repeated dysfunctions and, you know, repeated, um, you know, sort of instances of religious fanaticism or, you know, um, all the different things that I write about, you know, in some ways it was very depressing to think about the negative things in that way. But in other ways, it it was um, much more interesting to sort of ponder why, why, why are these things repeating? Mm -hmm. Um, and it became in a roundabout way, almost a way out for me, you know, in looking back all this distance and even sort of imagining ancestors who maybe predated all of this. Um, I, yeah, I, I just found it really fulfilling to look at the whole mess of it rather than just sort of my as we used to say nuclear family <laughs> and the problems that i experienced there
0: mm-hmm. so i don't want to kind of i don't want to delve like into hypotheticals but i i'm cur- you you kind of you really lay out the appeal and perils of learning about ancestors and but i'd like to get your take on sort of the the flip side of that which is why do you think and especially as you point out in the west So many choose the path of avoidance when it comes to ancestry and sort of fill that void with a, you know, a family mythology or funny stories or silence.
1: Yeah, that is a really interesting question to me. And, you know, especially when I look at our larger culture,
2: you know, Mm -hmm.
1: for example, And I look at, you know, as I write in the book, I had many ancestors who enslaved black people, Mm -hmm. and I'm only beginning to understand the ways that my ancestors were involved in displacing and killing people who were indigenous to these lands, Um, you know, but when we look at this larger cultural conversation um, that we're having about white supremacy, for example, and um, redlining and and other um, practices that have perpetuated the systemic racism that began in the case of black people, you know, when, um, you know, many of the black people in this country today, when their ancestors were kidnapped from Africa, you know, brought to this country and enslaved. And, you know, so, so I noticed that there's this kind of, um, you know, abstract desire on the part of people who want to reckon with this, um, you know, for for us to talk about it and to know these histories in a broad cultural way. Mm -hmm. And I agree that that's important, but I really strongly believe that it's important for those of us who are aware of our individual ancestors' participation in the construction and perpetuation of those systems, to to come forward and talk about it, and if we have children, to tell our children about it, you know, because personalizing these stories gives them more power, you know. And by that, I don't mean, you know, that we should, um, you know, call up our black friends and unburden ourselves. Mm-hmm. What I mean is, you know, we need to do the work, whatever work we need to do, you know, in therapy or whatever it may be to be able to, you know, sit with our feelings about that, accept those histories, and then talk about it with other people who, you know, are resistant or may also come from from these kinds of histories. And, you know, and I I notice there's you know, a real tendency to want to just push this on the South, for example. And I understand why, because, you know, slavery was extremely brutal in the South, and it continued, um, you know, until the Civil War. But, you know, the Northern states also, you know, have this history. And in fact, the the ancestor I was talking about before who had been accused of being a witch, I discovered after the book was published that at the end of her life, she was living um, in a house with a black servant, which according to someone at the Springfield um, historical museum in Massachusetts, uh, probably meant that he was enslaved. Mm -hmm. And so you know, this this history, um, you know, it, it really permeates this country and this culture. And I believe it's so much more powerful for us to do that work of coming to terms with it individually and talking about it more broadly. And I do understand why people don't want to do it, because it's not fun and You know, it's not emotionally easy in every case. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, you know, I write in the book about how I was, I was always willing to acknowledge this history on my father's side. And then I discovered that I had it on my mother's side as well, Mm -hmm. through my beloved, revered um, maternal grandmother. And that was, that was harder. me to process but it was still important you know um and yeah it just to me it feels like the very least we can do to just you know be transparent about these histories when we uncover them Mm -hmm. but I do understand that it's you know that for some people it's
0: easier to look away yeah. one of the things I've, I've I've kind of had difficulty in both of my reads of ancestor trouble of wrapping my head around has been how you described the your the practice of ancestor veneration and of, of making the line well that you know you were told the goal being the removal of confusion and a return of connection and clarity and, right I mean I'm Someone who has plenty of confusion, um, especially not knowing what like half of my makeup or background is and being really the last of my of both my known and unknown lines. Um, And I, I guess from my experience, I do feel sort of stuck in my own finger trap, like you had said earlier. Can you walk me through the idea of making the line well, as you call it?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, this has, this has become important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also really want to say to you and, and anyone who's listening that it's sort of not really important to me whether there's any objective reality to this. Okay. You know, this sort of spiritual or psychological um, journey or set of practices that, you know, that have become important to me. Um, it, it doesn't really matter to me, even if it's all imagined, okay. um, because I think that, you know, I, I'm interested in some of Jung's ideas about our ancestors' unfinished business um, and how, you know, not psychologically reckoning with, you know, troubled histories can just cause them to keep sort of showing up for ourselves and for our families. And so, yeah, but the, the idea, um, you know, and I've, I've worked with a few different teachers who, um, you know, you um, have trained in this kind of spiritual modality is to sort of choose one of your lines, you know, and for better or worse, they, they encourage um, choosing it along biological sex at birth. So That you can sort of like envision the full line of, um, you know, people who historically would have been considered grandfathers or grandmothers, um, you know, and that line going all the way down to you. And so the idea, you know, let's say that, you know, um, you decided to embark on this, you know, which I did with some um trepidation and a sort of native agnosticism that you know that was a reaction to my own childhood but let's say you were going to embark on this and you decided to work with a particularly troubled line so let's say you know that for whatever reason your mother's mother's line seemed particularly troubled to you okay so rather than sort of um, the way you might in therapy sort of talking about those more recent histories and focusing on the, you know, whatever had happened to, you know, in this example, your mom with her mom and, and then maybe her mom and, and her mom before that, um, you know, you would just sort of imagine or connect to, depending on your, um, you know, point of view and bandwidth for this sort of thing, Um, you know, the line going back in time, you know, and so you would imagine um, the line going back, you know, 500 years or a thousand years or, and so then you would, you know, have this sense of where the line had been less confused. You know, so the idea is sort of, you know, and there, I think there is a lot of dispute around this, but the idea is that, you know, in, in many, if not most, indigenous traditions, there is an idea of the dead being prayed for after death, and being sort of um, given the opportunity to connect with the larger dead Mm -hmm. in a healthy way. So no matter what someone did in life, no matter how horrible their deeds were in life, the idea is that it's important for them to be seated with or part of this larger um, sort of well benevolent, you know, um, mass of, of ancestors of you know one's individual family and of a people, you know. And and I'm speaking very loosely here. I am not a scholar in this area and. You know, I'm sure that there are many exceptions to this, but but that's the idea. Okay. And so, and and I do think that it is fair to say that um, there are many instances of this across the world and across time. And in the Christianized West, in a lot of ways, we are unable to know exactly what the histories were. Because, you know, from my perspective, and, and you know, I don't think I'm, I know I'm not alone in this, you know, many records were destroyed partly, um, you know, as part of the church's effort to kind of, you know, shift things so that the focus was on the church. And also many practices predate, you know, mm-hmm. written um, records of religion and so you know but i but i do in the book sort of go over some practices in ancient greece and rome and you know what what i was able to find and you know what some scholars think about the role of ancestors there um in any case you know so that so the idea is that ultimately what you want to do is have a sense of you know, all of the ancestors being part of this well line. Um, you know, and you, you might not want to call it well, maybe that's a little too sort of, you know, this moment in American culture. <laughs> you know, maybe you want to think of it as elevated or, um, you know, or, or something else. But, you know, the idea is that You know, you you have a sense of the positive aspects of that lineage, you know, real or imagined coming down to you so that you become the face of the positive aspects of that lineage in the world. And the, the negative aspects of that lineage, it's not that you're denying them, it's not that you're um trying to avoid them. But the idea is that they're no longer sort of like the prevailing um vibe, if you will. Okay, you know, I got you Around the, the more recent dead. And so the idea is that in having access to, again, whether in reality or, or only sort of emotionally psychologically within yourself, um, having access to all of these positive attributes and this sense of a continuation, um, you know, and then ultimately a sort of connection back to all of humanity and potentially, you know, going back even further than that to like the entire world, right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's this sort of like more positive sense of having a place in the world and a continuation um, from something uh, real and bodily, you know, but also sort of more psychologically whole. I, I, you know, I'm I'm using a lot of different sort of. Um, terms very loosely no but you're
0: you're 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 bringing it into focus for me um well thanks i i'm yeah no i'm 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 getting it i guess does that connectedness bring you a degree of comfort
1: it does you know it really does um you know for me you know, and I and I do talk about this explicitly in the book, but in the West, we have such a confused mm-hmm. relationship to our ancestors, you know, um, and it's not monolithic, you know, some people have this sort of allegiance to the idea of whatever, you know, their ancestor was doing. In the case of my father, you know, I mean, he literally believes that, Slavery should never have been ended. And in large part, he believes that because our ancestors did it, therefore it must have been correct. And, you know, so so obviously I'm coming out of a, an extreme situation. To say the least, front. yes. Yeah. But, you know, so so there are people like my father, you know, and then there are people who have an attitude that's more like whatever my ancestors don't mean anything i'm you know i'm a free agent in the world and i'm you know i'm kind of like athena hopping off of zeus's head and i can do whatever i want um you know both of those things seem confused to me (laughs) and not really in keeping with what we know of the ways that people have felt and thought about ancestors over time Mm -hmm. and you know so i do think that a lot of us who are sort of embarking on these factual searches about our ancestors there's a longing there that to me has become more explicitly at least psychologically or rather psychological, if not spiritual, you know, over time. My sense is that what we're looking for often is not limited to facts. And so, yeah, so I, I have really felt a sense of comfort, um, from having this kind of, I don't know, feeling of connection back through my own people, you know, Mm -hmm. real or imagined, and then a sense of connecting, you know, back to everyone, ultimately, you know, doing this um, kind of spiritual practice or meditative practice, or however you want to think of it, has, has really given me a deeper sense of connection to the earth in, in an intimate way.
0: Is it almost sort of a, a have it like it gave you a context for yourself?
1: Yeah, I mean, I you know, <laughs> I've, I've had so many years of therapy, and I've, <laughs> I've also at this point, um, you know, meditated, not very consistently but for many years. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not that I had no context for myself, but it gave me a a context for myself that felt less empirical. Okay. And, you know, like a kind of knowing that... um, that was absent in my life you know and and it may be you know i often think about how in this country um you know many of my ancestors came to this country because they wanted to embark on a new disfavored religion Mm -hmm. and you know (laughs) over the centuries many people including my mom have just sort of once again turned over the apple cart and done their own thing on the religious front. And so in some ways, um, I can see my own search as a kind of repetition mm-hmm. of that pattern. You know, I've now, after many years of being what I called a fervent agnostic, um, you know, I've found my own sort of spiritual or spiritual esque practice um that you know that I find meaningful and so you know maybe that's not necessary for everyone Mm -hmm. but I do think it's interesting even for people who have no interest in God um, and no interest in spirituality to just sort of think about you know what it means that we are in some ways, a continuation of, you know, a new iteration of the people who came before us, hmm. you know?
0: So. Well, now I have to actually move on to the next question because I'll be thinking about that till, you know, for the next five hours. And I don't want to leave people with five hours of dead air. Thinking. <laughs> um, so you write, um, about really, really interestingly about the good and the bad and the ugly of sort of the ancestry and genealogy websites. Yeah. And I, I've i considered spitting into the tube to find out the ingredients that make me me. But there have been a lot of things, many of which you mentioned, uh, that give me pause. Um, even beyond that, you know, do I really want to know? And if I did know, what would I do with it? Um, from the perspective of someone who spent the better part of a decade, if not more, up to their eyeballs in these sites, I'm curious to know what, to you, would be the features of a more ethical genealogy website?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. You know, I think, for one thing, users Should have access to everything that the website has access to, Mm -hmm. um, at the very least. So, you know, for example, ancestry.com doesn't even allow you to see what's called your raw data, you know, from from your chromosomes. Mm -hmm. Um, They have that information. And for a while, they were actively partnering with the medical industry, I believe, with the pharmaceutical in- industry. but I, I can't remember um, the extent to which the details of their partnerships uh, you know, were public. And I, I don't have any special insight um, into non-public aspects of their partnerships. but, you know, it's clear that they know a lot Mm -hmm. about their subscribers that their subscribers don't know. Um, So that would be to me, the very first thing. The second thing would be that um, subscribers would have a very clear understanding of what their data could and could not be used for, Mm -hmm. including whether it would be potentially turned over to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, also websites like ancestry.com who, you know, purport to, um, you know sort of lay these genetic details alongside their records um are sort of hiding or downplaying some records of slavery in searches now hmm. so that it's much harder to find that data um than it was, say, five or ten years ago, and so that you know, all of that data should be available. If you're if you're claiming to make the historical records available, they should all be available. Um, I think that there should be strict regulation of these websites i don't think that they should be able to provide genetic data to life insurance companies to health insurance companies to um you know i don't think that employers should be able to use genetic data against applicants for jobs you know and then on the racism front you know i think it's really important for these companies to bring in black people indigenous people you know and ask people in those communities what kinds of protections they want to see what kinds of information they want um there is a little bit more inclusivity in terms of DNA, for example, from um, you know, different countries in Africa. But you know, the, the sites still skew very heavily toward people of white European origin. And so that's really problematic. Um Yeah, and I think that it's important for people to understand that putting their data into these websites has implications for close biological relatives they may not know. You know, for example, I have um, half siblings who are about 40 years younger than I am, and I don't know them. Um, and my putting data into these databases could potentially have effects for them in some hmm. unforeseen way down the road.
0: So tell me about a time you almost gave up on ancestor trouble, if there was one.
1: Yeah, Um don't think that I almost gave up on it because I had a book contract so I was, <laughs> was that'll do it. Pretty much on the hook for it. yeah. Um, but there were definitely times, you know, like I remember especially the period when I was reading, you know uh, ancient Greek philosophers. <laughs> You know, and about ancient Greek philosophers and trying to figure out, you know, what exactly Pythagoras thought about, you know, what attributes parents pass to children and what Aristotle thought, you know. And there was a time when I was reading Aristotle at like two o'clock in the morning after a full day at my day job. And I remember just thinking, am I writing a book? Or is this actually crazy? Like, what <laughs> am I doing right now? You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. And there were various points like that. But somehow, you know, I have no background in classics. Okay. Um, and it was really important to me to try to make sure that I got everything right you Mm -hmm. know so when I was talking about the science I really wanted to break down for the reader here's what we know about epigenetics here's what we don't know here's what I think you know despite the fact that we don't know you know Um, and so there were a lot of different disciplines that I had to kind of dive into Mm -hmm. and, you know, that I had no prior um, facility with. And and so that felt very daunting, but, you know, also sort of exciting at times.
0: Yeah, Aristotle at 2 a.m. would be enough to drive anyone insane, (laughs) to question reality, question,
1: yeah. How about you tell me about when a time when you've almost abandoned a, a creative project? Uh
0: every time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I I think the biggest example for me was I had been I kind of went through a well, actually it was when my mother was so sick and I was in the caretaker role, I went through this period which ended up being a bait about seven or eight years of silence, of not producing anything. And I had this idea in my head, and I was just playing with it and playing with it and trying to get it right and trying to get it right. And the rhythm just wasn't there. I couldn't... And and I'm a drummer, and so rhythm to me is everything. And I could not make the rhythm of the words work. And so I you know at least once a month would just say to hell with this i'm done but it would keep pulling me back and so flash forward to 7 6 years and 11 months later i realized it was only a it only wanted to be a paragraph yeah and so it took me 7 years to publish it but it took me 6 years and 11 months to realize it wasn't a full novella or anything
1: yeah, I mean that is so powerful, and well, I you know it, it, not it, wasted time at all. I mean, from uh, my perspective, when you well, when well, you nail that that thing, well, you know, here
0: here's a funny part of that is that I can remember because I mean you've been writing Ancestor Trouble for how long? I mean,
1: I was writing it as a book right. since
0: 2014. Okay, and so I can remember going like, my God, Maude's been doing this for, I was like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I, I can, I can make this work. I can do this. I can do this. And then, then, like I said, just one day, one day it just hit me. It's like, well, hell, this thing just wants to be a paragraph. And, yeah. and I, and I just remembered something that Robert Caro said, and your book made me think of it. And writing that thing that I put out made me think of it, which was truth takes time.
1: Yes, exactly. And I think, you know, it was sometime, maybe in my late 30s, or maybe in my early 40s, I just kind of stopped being dramatic. Around my work, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, in the way that I—I I mean, I had been so like, oh, it's all garbage and <laughs> it's all useless and forget it. I'm never writing again. And, That's you know, me at four
0: thirty every morning. What do you?
1: <laughs> <laughs> at a certain point, I just came to this realization. You know, I guess it was probably a combination of age, all the years of therapy, you know, the, the meditation and, you know, just sort of like seeing how my process worked. I just kind of said to myself, you know what? Yeah, you are going to write and you can tell yourself that you're not going to write. If mm-hmm. you want to, you can do the whole big dramatic thing and, you know, whatever you want to do, but you you are going to write. Mm-hmm. You will find your way back to it. It's not the choice that you think it is. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, of course, what you know, I have I have definitely decided not to write that novel that I was endlessly working on before. Mm-hmm. And I would definitely be open to abandoning any project if I realized that it was you know really misguided in some way but I just yeah I feel a lot more just kind of committed to showing up and doing it than I did when I was younger and I was so I had a much more tumultuous um relationship to writing
0: and and it is about you be, you find a comfort with your process, a, fa- a faith in your process. Yes.
1: yes, exactly. And for me, you know, I just sort of realized, like, I can do this as many times as I want to. I can have this sort of internal tantrum and the, you know, and all of that. And, um, you know, and then that's just going to take time away. Yeah from the work that I actually really care about. So if I can instead just realize, okay, you know, you're going through a rough time, maybe work on a different part of it or take Mm. a break, or maybe there's maybe what you think you have to do here isn't really the thing that you have to do here. So maybe you could think about an exciting you know, aspect of the project rather than, than this, um, it, you know, I'm just much better at sort of talking myself out of a, <laughs> of a big dramatic showdown with my work now, which is good.
2: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, well,
0: one of the, I think one of the most freeing things for me and this, the, this, as I call it now, the seven year paragraph, um, One of the most freeing things it did, getting it out there, was that it divorced me from thinking about the final form something would take. It was, I am going to write this thing, and whatever it becomes is what it becomes. Yeah. I will not say, I am going to write a novel. Yeah. I, I will not say if it becomes that, it becomes that. If it doesn't, it doesn't. That was really like the main reason I did the little self-published, uh, self-assembled thing. You know, the thing I sent you wouldn't have existed in any other way for me.
1: Yeah. A- and, yeah. It,
0: and it was this sort of, it was this total freedom of I am a big I'm a big proponent of form, but I am also a bigger proponent of freedom from it until it's time for it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that I think is one reason that I was back in the day, so drawn to the blog form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me because too. Because it could really be anything, mm-hmm. you know, um, and. Yeah, there's there's something really powerful about being able to put out a sentence or a paragraph or, you know, a ten thousand word essay. Yeah. You know? Um, and it'll be you know, what I guess, it's going to be. Exactly. And I, I mean I I guess for you know people who are a lot younger than I am, or or even the, I mean you're quite a bit younger than I am, but people who are quite a bit younger than both of us, um, you know, they don't. They were not around and writing at a time when, you know, when there was no sort of ability to just sort of instantaneously, yeah. um, you know, say something as briefly or as at as much length as you want and and sort of quote unquote publish it to you know your family on social media or your friends on tiktok or you know i don't think young people tend to blog now but um no you i'm know, I'm,
0: I'm, I, I'm happily ancient in my ways
1: yeah um, yeah i uh, i still love putting up a post now and again um
0: yeah I like my, but, my my one a day thing I like doing that yeah just that sort yeah. of that that rhythm that ritual it's a
1: great commitment yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah well I mean I know I'm probably the only person who reads it so that's fine by me you know, I'm like I'm just going to enjoy myself so um yeah you know, it, it's sort of I
1: feel like people like me probably check in on it periodically oh, you know oh. and and pick it up you know here and there and you know and then there's stuff to read and that's kind of how i feel about about my blog too i mean mm-hmm. i i don't update it very often but i figure you know probably every once in a while somebody might be like oh i wonder if maud ever blogs and mm-hmm. then they can look and, and see what's there so we're we're
0: actually heading towards the end here um but i, I have two questions that i like to ask everyone yeah what's the medium or media that you haven't gotten the chance to play with that you'd like to
1: that's an interesting question well i'm going to say novel writing okay. because Even though I was endlessly working on that novel, it was so sort of under the shadow of my life Mm -hmm. that I didn't really... I don't think that I had the opportunity or gave myself the opportunity to approach fiction um, as a truly sort of opportunity to make things up. And I'm really getting excited about that now uh, as I as I delve into this new thing I'm working on and you know I'm sure soon enough I will <laughs> be coming up against you know my own limitations and talking myself out of those you know you'll get um, dramatic and yeah exactly <laughs> I'm sure but yeah at the moment I'm I'm really excited about that.
0: Okay, so where can people um, connect with you, find you?
1: Well, for (laughs) anyone who's still on Twitter, um, I am on Twitter more than I should be. Aren't we all? Yeah, I have a newsletter. It's called Ancestor Trouble, Um, and it's a kind of expansive category that I've I'm certain my novel will <laughs> also fit into even though it's not going to be about my family and um, yeah so I just write about you know I mean lately I've been writing about stuff related to my book but you know I, I also bring in related things I've been reading and just share personal stuff and so
0: all right well yeah well thank you so much for doing this and
1: this was delightful i'm sorry that i didn't have a shorter answer on the uh ancestor veneration thing. oh no you're fine um, well thanks again for doing this and um you know i'm looking forward to reading your book
0: and i'm looking forward to having my teeth chattering while i while you do (laughs) So many thanks to Maud for such a fantastic conversation, uh, for such an amazing, brave book, which you really should all go read right now because, hey, you know what? If you're not going to listen to the New York Times Book Review, listen to me. As ever, if you'd like to shout, scream, swear, say hi, or otherwise, my email is com. You can check out earlier episodes of this show at tsrpod. And if you've enjoyed this and those, subscribe via RSS, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast delivery system. And if you'd like to check out what I'm working on, thinking about dog pictures, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, subscribing to my bi-weekly newsletter, Macro Parentheticals, is the best way to do just that parentheticalrecluse.com slash letter. Um, One item of business which I have neglected to mention since the first couple of episodes and I feel like a total ass because of it. But I am going to get better about this. The theme music which you're hearing right now and have heard in every episode even though I've forgotten to mention it. Theme music is Intersections by my good friend the one and the only Professor Uziel Kalal. We'll see you next time.